You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. First uh, Peter chapter 2 is where we are, and so you're going to need your Bible, so make sure you, you have one in front of you. If you don't have one, you didn't bring one, feel free to grab one of those underneath your seat. Um, we'd love for you to, to be looking at that. I think it'd be profitable for you to be looking at it um, as we kind of work through this morning. Um, it's a good thing you're in the second service. Um, for one, I hit a duck hook of a sermon in the first service. And on top of that, a fire alarm went off in the middle of it. And so thank God for mulligans, right? And grace. And so here we go. First Peter chapter two, um, we're gonna get rolling. Okay, so we're in a chapter, chapter two that you just heard read. And uh, if, if you just, like just a casual reading of that, if you just listen to it, you saw that it covers a wide variety of issues. Um, so we've got a couple of, of things that we're gonna get into over the next couple of weeks as we look at um, verse four through 12. But then when you get into 13 and beyond, you got issues like um, what does submission to the government look like and authorities look like in your life? Um, what does submission look like to um, a boss and kind of in the workplace? That, that idea will be brought out. Um, we'll get to the suffering of Jesus and what that means for our suffering that we go through. So it's got a, a wide terrain of issues that it's going to be working through. Um, but for the next two weeks, we've got 4 through 12, verses 4 through 12. And it's a dense section of Scripture, so it's going to take us two weeks to get through that. And I've got a specific aim this morning at what we're trying to do in the first four or five verses, verses 4 through 8 this morning is I want to allow these, um, this, this passage, these, these few verses, to help answer this massively, massively important question for us. Um, the question of who is Jesus? Now, when you think about this, this man, Jesus, um, there is no question that he dominates the historical scene. I think all people are in agreement um, that when you look back over the course of history, that there is no person that is more cited, more talked about, more so songs written to this guy and sung to this guy, um, more art crafted of him. He is the most popular, the most recognizable fig uh, figure in all of history. Um, he is that dominant kind of person, that, that dominant object that looms over history. Even this atheist, H.G. Wells, we don't normally quote him, but it fits for this one, um, agrees with this. Listen to what he says about Jesus. He says, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer, but I must confess as an historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant kind of figure or object in the history, uh, in all of history, in the history of the world. He is that central person, that central object. And here's what's so interesting about Jesus, that, that he's that central person, but there is still so much confusion. There's a cloud of confusion that just kind of hovers around this guy. And so in, in our day and in Jesus's day, if you look at Luke chapter nine, you've got this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. They're walking down a road and Jesus looks at them and asks them the question, who do, who, who do the crowds, who do people say that I am? And they look at Jesus and they say, well, some people say John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're, you're an old prophet. It. But I think if you just took a step back and, and ask, what are they really saying? They're saying, they don't know who you are. They're confused about it. They don't have any idea, right? And, and that same sort of cultural confusion still exists today. If you're just to go ask 10 people who Jesus is, you would get a wide variety of responses. And that's even in the church, right? Okay, now listen to Jared Wilson 
Um, He wrote a book called Your Jesus is Too Safe. Listen to him kind of comment on this. He says, The great irony is that despite being the most discussed and confessed figure in all of history, no historical person has been more marginalized and commoditized than Jesus. For many today, he is a generic brand, a logo, a catchphrase, a pick-me-up. He's been fictionalized by the temptation of Christ, humanized by the passion of Christ, and satirized by South Park. He's been romanticized by countless admirers and sanitized by the Christian consumer culture. In other words, he's saying there is still this cultural confusion around this man, around this central object of history that divides time. There is still this cloud of confusion that exists with him. But do you remember what Jesus does in Luke 9 um, after he asked the question of who do the crowd say that I am? He zeroes in, puts the bullseye on the disciples, and he says, but here's what I really want to know. Who do you say that I am? And there is no more important question for you to answer than than that one. If you want to be honest with history and honest with yourself, that there is no more important question for you to have a good response to than this question of who is Jesus. So we're going to let Peter point out some things. Let me just preface it with, with this. Peter is not going to say everything in these four or five verses about Jesus, but he is going to say some essential things. So with that said, let's start in verse four. Chapter two, verse four goes like this. As you come to him, that's the posture that a, that a person should have towards Jesus. Specifically, this is written to a Christian crowd. So as Christians were continually coming to Jesus. And then it says this, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse six, for it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse seven, so the honor is for, for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, verse eight. And listen to this, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now in, in Peter's, just as, as we've covered a chapter and a few verses now, I love the metaphors and pictures that he use, uses. Last week in, in chapter two, verses two and three, we saw this picture of um, the word of God being milk And he talks about this infant impulse to devour milk. And how as a Christian, there should be that impulse in us to run after, to to devour, to have an appetite for the milk of God's word. And so he uses that that imagery of milk and infant impulses to describe the Christian and and a word. And now he's, he's switching metaphors and he's picking up on a rich biblical metaphor, especially in the Old Testament, of God as a rock. And you see this metaphor play out. He uses the word rock eight times or stone eight times in this passage, seven of which apply to Jesus. And so he's taking this rich Old Testament metaphor of a stone or a rock, and he's specifically applying that metaphor to who is Jesus, to describe Jesus to us. And so I want to show you three ways that he describes Jesus as a rock in this passage, three ways. Here's the first one. Look at verse four. He says, as you come to him, and then he uses this word, a living stone. He, he calls Jesus a living stone. Now, typically when you, when you see the word, or if you're just going to play the word association game, you typically would not put stone and living beside one another, would you? 
Typically, those words aren't associated unless you're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one, one time where you could associate stone and living together. So, so essentially, Peter is saying Jesus came and lived a sinless life. He died a brutal and excruciating death. And he is alive. The G- Jesus, he's alive. He, he, was, he rose from the dead. The, on the third day, he came back to life. Now, now, I don't know if you've clued into this yet, but that's big news. That, that is big news. A guy predicted that he was going to die and he came back to life. And the guy actually died and came back to life. That, that, that changes a lot of things for us, right? That, that, that truth right there, living stone, Jesus alive, came back from the dead, that alters a lot of things for us. Now, if, if you are a person that, that today you're kicking the tires on Christianity, like you, you haven't jumped in, you're still kind of investigating Jesus, trying to figure this whole thing out. If, if that's you, let me just give you this encouragement to make sure that when you're, when you're investigating, that you start at the center and not on the edges of this thing. See, most, most people, when they're investigating, when they're kicking the tires, they start asking questions that are on the edge. How did, how did Cain get a wife? How, why did God create cats? I don't know the answer to that. I have no idea. But listen, here's the point. They're not central questions. They're, they're not, if, however you answer it, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But, but this question is central. Did Jesus really come back to life? Is he a living stone? And if the answer is yes to that, then everything about your life should change. Everything. Now, now think about the context and, and who Peter is writing to and why he would write this. He is writing to a group of suffering Christians, suffering saints. They're marginalized, ostracized. They're fearful. They're, they're all of that. They're suffering persecution because they are following Jesus. And if these Christians are not careful, they're going to end up exactly where the disciples ended up in John chapter 20 when their world had just fallen apart. Do you remember John chapter 20? This is right after Jesus was, was crucified. In John 20 in verse 19, It says that the disciples, they all gathered in one room and it says that they locked the door in fear of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. That they're huddled up, discouraged, depressed, scared for their life. I mean, they just pushed all their chips in with Jesus and the house just took them all. They all came crashing down for them. It was just a terrible moment and they're scared to death locked in the room. But the end of verse 19 says, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And when that Jesus, when they saw that same Jesus that died, that same Jesus alive, it altered the course of human history. Like it turned this scared to death, this shaky little band of followers, depressed, discouraged, into a courageous group of gospel proclaimers. So so the the same people that are scared to death of the religious leaders, if you just flip a few chapters over from John 20, you're in the opening chapters of Acts. You see in in Acts 2 and 3 and 4, they are the same people, that that scared little band are the same people who are boldly and passionately proclaiming the gospel to those same religious leaders. Isn't that something? That it has that sort of, of a change and that drastic of an effect on a group of people. And so the first thing Peter is wanting his people to know that are reading this a couple of thousand years ago is Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And if you believe that, it's going to change the way that you suffer. It's going to change the way you would be scared of people. It's going to turn you into a bold, courageous gospel proclaimer. That's what it's going to turn you into. And so I think it would just be good for us to stop and just linger over this. When's the last time you thought that, that you, you, you have a living God? He was dead and he came back to life. That, that he's a living stone, Jesus is. 
And that's supposed to do something to you. That's supposed to have an effect on you. He's a living stone. That's the first thing Peter wants to remind us of. But then, then he uses this stone um, imagery, this metaphor, and, and takes it in a little bit different way. Um, look at verse 4. Let's start again there. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the one time stones are used to apply to us in this passage and not uh, Jesus. We're going to come back to that next week. So you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying a stone, in Zion, a stone. And then he says this, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter is picking up on this Old Testament imagery, specifically out of Isaiah, and and he's picking up and he's quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And he's making a connection here. And I think this is a good point just to remind you of. When Peter is reading the Old Testament, he is reading it in light of Jesus. Like from Genesis to Revelation, we say this around here often, that the Bible is about Jesus. Genesis is about Jesus. Exodus is about Jesus. Leviticus is about Jesus. Isaiah is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. So when he reads Isaiah, he is reading that, looking for Jesus. He's reading that, linking what he's reading in Isaiah to Jesus. So when he quotes Isaiah, he's not just quoting him. He's explaining him. He's saying that this cornerstone that Isaiah is talking about, that cornerstone is Jesus. That Jesus is a cornerstone. That's who Jesus is. Okay, now this, this um, cornerstone imagery. What, what is a cornerstone? There's several characteristics that I think are good for you to pick up on, just kind of have in your back pocket when you're thinking Jesus as a cornerstone. Um, first, it would be the first stone laid. So this takes us back to some ancient architecture here. It would be the first stone laid. So, so um, the, the cornerstone was the, was the stone that they would cut out and they would lay down in the foundation that, that would form this foundational thing for it. So the rest of the building takes on the lines of the cornerstone. So, so if the cornerstone on the foundational level is laid properly, the rest of the house can be built properly. So it's this foundational element. It's first in the sense that when it's laid down and and then every other brick or stone in the house, in the structure, takes its place in relationship to that cornerstone. It's that foundational piece, that first stone on which the rest of the building is is built. If, If this is not square, the cornerstone isn't square, then the house will not be square. But if the cornerstone is square, then the rest of the house is gonna be square. So it's foundational. It's a first stone laid in that, that sort of a sense of a word. Okay, but secondly, it's not just the first stone laid. It had to be the strongest stone. So it had to be the stone that the rest of the house could sit on it had to be able to, to withhold the, the immense pressure, the, re, the immense weight of the rest of the house. So it had to be a strong stone. And, and thirdly, this stone had to be a perfect stone. It had to be cut precisely to fit in and make the foundation for that specific structure. So it was cut precisely, without flaw. It had to be perfect and precious. It, it was said that um, oftentimes that there would be more time spent cutting and crafting this stone as there would be building the rest of the house. So so it was a perfect, a precious stone cut perfectly to fit into that specific house, to to make the foundation of that specific structure. Okay, now apply those three characteristics onto the life of Jesus, and here's what you get. First, you get Jesus is foundational. When it says Jesus is the cornerstone, it means that Jesus is the first. He is the foundational piece of a person's life. That, That he is to be laid into our life 
And everything else in our life from that moment on finds its, its place in relationship to that stone. Everything else does. So, so this stone is laid and everything else is built on that, finds its place from that. In other words, just go down the list of things, work, family, marriage, um, finances, sex, food, drink. None of those things will work properly if they are not laid on the foundational stone of Jesus. If this is not laid down properly, correctly, nothing else goes right. It's impossible. If, if that stone is out of square, it's impossible for the rest of your house, the rest of your life to be built correctly. The rest of your life will be out of square if it's out of square. If it's misaligned, then the rest of your life is going to be misaligned. So it's, it's, he's saying it's essential that you're seeing Jesus as foundational, that he is the thing that has to be perfectly laid down into your life if the rest of your life can be built correctly. Okay, so, so then the question becomes, what, what does it mean? How, how do you lay Jesus down in your life? How do you lay this cornerstone down? What, what, what does that require? Look at verse six and seven for that. You see the word believe there? It uses it twice in six and seven. That it's for those who believe. Okay, so, so laying this cornerstone down requires belief or faith in Jesus. Okay, now this is the place that American Christianity and biblical Christianity start to diverge. This is the place that, that Americans, like the American version of this whole biblical Christianity thing, like takes an, the exit ramp and, and starts going down a side street. Okay, this is the area. So this is what happens for a lot of people in our culture when they think of belief. They equate belief into mental agreement. So, so I agree with a certain set of facts. So, so belief becomes, I agree that Jesus came and lived a sinless life, that he died an undeserving death as, as a substitute for sin. I believe that he rose again from the dead. I believe those things. Okay, for most people in our culture, that's what belief, that's what faith means, is, is mental agreement with those things. But that is not what biblical faith is. That's not what biblical belief is. Biblical belief is a big, robust word. It starts with agreement with facts, but it does not end with agreement of those facts. So it starts here. You've got to know these things. You've got to see those things. You've got to, to say, I agree with those things. But it's not just agreeing with a certain set of facts. Belief in the Bible or faith in the Bible is agreeing with those things and then trusting and treasuring Jesus. So it's agreeing that, that Jesus has done all of that. And then it's you trusting your life on that. It's you banking your life that those things are right. It's you placing all of your life, moving all of your chips into, I am in on that. And then it's treasuring him above all things. It's saying that, that God is, Jesus is the ultimate desire in my life. Like I, I am all in for him. That, that's biblical belief. It's not just agreement with facts, but it's agreement with those facts and then trusting and treasuring, surrendering and savoring Jesus. Okay, that, that's biblical belief. Okay, now let's just use this imagery of cornerstone to kind of illustrate this. Here would be way one. This would be the Americanized version of belief. It's I agree with these facts about Jesus and I've got all these bricks of my life that kind of make up my life. All these bricks make up this wall that called my life. And, and Jesus now becomes just another brick in that wall. So, so I take Jesus and I just insert him as another brick of one among many into that wall. That is not biblical Christianity. That's not belief. Belief is my wall, my life just got ripped to shreds and they brought the, the bulldozer out and dug up the cornerstone and they placed a new cornerstone underneath all of my life. And the cornerstone is called Jesus. And now Jesus is laid down on the foundational level and now the wall is starting to be rebuilt with him underneath and everything stacked on him. 
Okay, that's, that's biblical Christianity. He's not, listen, he refuses to be a brick in your wall. He won't allow it. But believing in Jesus is ripping down the wall and putting him as cornerstone. Maybe you could think of it this way. I heard one pastor illustrate it like this. If you think of your life as a drawer, and in your life, you have all these files in the drawer. See, most people think of Jesus like this. Well, okay, Jesus is a new file. And so I'm going to put him in the drawer, one of many different files. So he's just in there with the file of work. He's in there with the file of this hobby. He's in there with the file of family, of kids, of all these other things. He's just one among many files. That is not biblical Christianity. That's not biblical belief. Biblical belief is my, my drawer just got ripped out and torn to shreds and I've been giving a, a, given a new drawer called Jesus and now every other file in my life goes into that drawer of Jesus. Okay, do, do we see what we're trying to get at here? That, that is what it means to be a Christian, that you have a new cornerstone in your life. Not, not, a brick in, not a new brick in your wall, a new cornerstone. See, this is the, dif- uh, the difference between being religious and being regenerate. See, being religious is doing a lot of church things. Being regenerate is, do, is being a Christian. It's being saved by the grace of God. See, being, being religious is, I, I've got a new brick, he's called Jesus, and I've just inserted him in kind of the top left corner of the wall. But being regenerate, being a Christian is, the wall's been torn down, and Jesus is now the foundational thing in my life. He is underneath everything else. Everything else is stacked on him. He, he is foundational. Did you see what we're getting at there? So, so if you're kicking the tires on Jesus, I just want you to hear this, that what it requires to, to receive Jesus is making him your cornerstone, the, the foundation. Okay, now let me talk to believers in the room for just a second. because I think this introduces one other idea here, one other implication of this, is that when you become a Christian, here's essentially what happens. That you've got a new cornerstone that has been developed, and here's what growing as a Christian means. That, that all, yeah, this old cornerstone, you had all your life built on it, that growing as a Christian is going over and pulling off the bricks that were based on that previous cornerstone, that old cornerstone, and it's stacking those on Jesus. That, that's what growing as a Christian is. It's taking the bricks of your life off of that old cornerstone and now attaching those onto this foundation of Jesus, this new cornerstone. Okay, but, but here's what it introduces for us. When you came into the room this morning, you may have Jesus set as your cornerstone, but that, that flesh in you, that old enemy that was dethroned but not destroyed when you became a Christian, it keeps trying to pull those bricks that you have, you have placed on that new cornerstone, on Jesus. It's just trying to pull those bricks back off and it places them back on those old cornerstones. Okay, this is the problem we all have in here. And when, when we walk in the room, this is even for Christians in the room, when, when you walked in this morning, you had a functional cornerstone in your life. Okay, so Jesus may be laid as the cornerstone, but you've got these functional cornerstones around Jesus that the flesh is pulling the, the stones of your life over to. That these functional cornerstones that, that are aligning your life, driving your life, setting the lines for your life, square, that you're squaring your life to. So, so these functional cornerstones, it could be comfort, it could be power, it could be approval, it could be control, it could be money, it could be your work, it could be your family, your spouse, your kids. There's a thousand things it could be that you might have walked in the room this morning taking your cues from. Functionally, you're operating as if it is the cornerstone. See, th- this is how you know that you've got cornerstones going. Is that if you were to lose that thing, like when the winds and, and the rains of life happen and you were to lose that thing, your life would be, begin to crumble around you. That, that if you lost this, it, it would crumble. Well, that functional cornerstone is the thing over which you look at God and say, God, this is a non-negotiable for me. You, you, can, you can have anything else. 
I can even lose anything else, but I cannot lose this thing. Whatever that thing is, that's your cornerstone. Um, One pastor illustrated it like this. He said that um, looking at his wife, here, here was her problem. When their kids were sick and not doing well, her life would instantly just start to crumble around her crumbling kids. But for him as a pastor, when the church was sick and the church wasn't doing, doing real well, his life would instantly start to crumble around the church. See, whatever your life starts to crumble around when you lose it, that, that's your functional cornerstone. And, and embedded in this passage is a call for you to repent of those cornerstones, for you to turn your back on those cornerstones and run back to the cornerstone of Jesus. This is why repentance is an ongoing issue for every one of us in here. It's because the flesh continually wants to pull the, the stones of your life over and, and out of and off of Jesus and onto something else. So, so where are you in that? Do you have some functional cornerstones that are working in your heart? And, and really, this is just an issue of idolatry. So some, some small little idols, small gods that you're looking to for life and for meaning and for purpose and for satisfaction. Like embedded in this is a call for you to repent of those things, to turn from those things and to run back to Jesus. So he says, I'm foundation. That's, that's the first thing that this cornerstone thing means for Jesus, that I am the foundational thing. I will not be a brick in anyone's wall. I am the cornerstone in the wall. Okay, that, that's first, but he, there, there's more implications of this cornerstone imagery. Secondly, you've got this, this piece of the cornerstone being strong and able to withhold the weight of the entire structure. And in the same way, Jesus is, is the strong, the secure, the stable foundation. He, he is strong, secure, and stable. In other words, Jesus is the only cornerstone. He is the only thing that you can place at the bottom of your life that can actually carry the weight of your life. Did you know that? He is the only thing that can carry the weight of your life. Jesus gives this vivid picture of this in Matthew 7. You remember the, the part where, in, I think it's verse 24, where he's talking about there's two builders. One builder builds his, or his house, or life house, I think same thing. His, his house on the sand. The, the other one builds it on the rock. But, but eventually the, the winds and the rains and the floods, they, they come. And in that passage, it, it says when, not if. So they're coming. It's just a matter of time before the winds, the rain, the floods come to your life. And do you remember what happens to the guy that has built his house on the sand? The house comes crashing down, doesn't it? And this is what happens when you build your life on any other stone. When the wind and the rain and the floods come, you start to find that rather than being stone, it's actually sand. And as the sand is fractured and and flawed and as it falls apart, so goes your life. I mean, isn't that how it works? Listen, your family is not meant to be a cornerstone in your life. Your family is meant to be a brick. And when you try to make it a cornerstone, you crush it. Your job is not supposed to be a, a, a cornerstone. It's supposed to be one brick out of many in your life. And when you choose to make your job, your reputation, your anything other than Jesus, when you choose to make that your cornerstone, it's crushed under it. It's not meant to be that. So, so in, this, in this picture of Jesus' cornerstone is, is embedded in it, this picture of everything else that you want to make a cornerstone is like sand. It's not made of stone. Jesus alone has the strength. It is stable enough to, to provide that sure foundation for your life to be built on. Okay, but there's one more implication here. You've got the cornerstone being precious, that it's perfectly cut and crafted for a specific purpose. And so goes Jesus, that Jesus is the precious cornerstone. 
And, and what makes him precious? It's because God the Father has perfectly cut him and crafted him to accomplish for you what you could never accomplish for yourself, salvation. So, so Jesus has crafted him perfectly to live a perfect life in your place, to die an undeserved death in your place, to die as a sinless substitute on the cross in your place. And for those who believe in him, all of our sin is stacked onto Jesus. All of his righteousness stacked onto us. It, it's this Jesus that, that his resurrection secures the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling us and empowering us for mission, right? It's, it's this Jesus that, that the Father calls precious, he accomplished for you what you can never accomplish for yourself. And it's when the blinders come off to this precious Jesus of what he has done for you through his life, death, burial, and resurrection that he actually becomes precious and attractive and beautiful to you. Maybe it would be good just to ask this question. Is Jesus attractive to you? I mean, is he, is he beautiful to you? Is he precious to you? I, I like how Charles Spurgeon, um, he illustrated this. He said, picture a man who is on his deathbed and a, a guy walks in, the guy's about to die. And another guy walks in and says, I've got the cure. I've got the medicine that, that will cure your, your ill here. Th this will make you well. And the guy says, do you want it? And, and the guy on the deathbed says, of course I want it. Are you crazy? I'm about to die here. Yes, I want it. And, and the guy looks back and he says, it's, it's going to be very costly. Are you sure you want it? Yes, I don't care what it costs. Give me the cure. And, and the guy looks back and says, it's going to cost you your savings account. You want it? Yes, I am in for it. I don't care if it costs me my savings account. It's going to cost you your house. Do you want it? Yes, I don't care if it costs me the house. It's going to cost you your car. Do you want it? Yes, I don't care if I, if I lose my car. I want the cure. It's going to cost you all of your money, all of everything. You're going to live in poverty for the rest... And the guy looks back and says, I don't care. I want it. I give me the cure. It doesn't matter if I have a house, if I don't get the medicine. It doesn't matter if I have a car, if I don't get the medicine. I won't be around to drive it. It doesn't matter if, if, if I have a savings account, if I don't have the medicine. I won't be around to spend it. Give me the medicine above everything else. And he's saying that this is how Jesus appears to a Christian. It is give me that above all else. I mean, the words of Jesus, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but doesn't have Jesus? He loses everything. And maybe on the flip side of that, what does it matter if you lose everything in the world if you have what is supremely valuable in it? See, that's how a Christian views this cornerstone, that he's precious, he's attractive, he's beautiful, he's worth pursuing, he's desirousome. So, so is that how you view Jesus? On your deathbed, there's the cure. I don't care what it costs, give it to me. So Peter calls him a cornerstone. He's foundational, he's strong, he's precious. But then there's this one last, one last picture here. Um, look at verse six. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for you, those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Look at verse eight. And this stone, this cornerstone, it has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So not only is Jesus a living stone, a cornerstone, but for some, he will be a stumbling stone, a stumbling stone. Peter is saying that there's two biblical categories that you might be in when it comes to Jesus, two biblical responses that you can have to Jesus. And, and both of these responses have eternal, significant, huge results to them. And, and here's one category. 
You, as far as the responses to Jesus, there can be reception. You can believe in Jesus. To use the word of, of verse six and seven. You can believe on him. You can put your faith in him, trust and treasure him, surrender and savor him. Okay, that, that's one response. And in that moment, when you do that, when you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says in that moment, when you cry out to God, God, here's my life, will you save me? That moment, the Bible says he does. He adopts you into the family. You're a part of God's family. You're a son or daughter of God. He becomes your father. His sovereignty is leveraged for your good at that point. The Bible said he saves you in, in that moment. Like, and do you see the, the results of that? It says, for those who believe, there will be honor. For those who believe, those who trust and treasure Jesus, there will be eternal honor from God. You, you will hear a forever, well done, my good and faithful servant. N not because of how good you are, but because of how good your cornerstone is. Okay, so you, you, there's going to be reception. You can receive Jesus. It's got eternal results that are attached to that. Okay, th there's a second category though. There can also be rejection. You see it in verse four there, in verse seven. Jesus was rejected by men, verse seven, those who don't believe. P Peter is saying that there are some who will not believe in Jesus, that they're not gonna go for Jesus. When they look at Jesus, they see a flawed cornerstone, a fractured cornerstone, that they see an unusable cornerstone. And in verse eight, it says that he's a rock of offense to some. E even more than being unusable for some, he's just completely un like unattractive. He's repulsive. He kind of stimulates the gag reflex when they think about it. Okay, there's some that would feel that way about Jesus. He's a rock of offense. And listen, that's not, I mean, that, that's in our day, one. I mean, you, you can talk about God all day long in our culture, but you mention Jesus and I'll promise you, you just hit the bee's nest, right? I mean, you, look out. You see offense come out when you mention that name. But listen, that's not new to, the, to our day. I mean, that, that was 2,000 years ago as well. And listen, I, I, I have a lot of compassion for the guys that actually rejected him. He is saying, difficult and demanding things. If you just go back and read the New Testament, he's saying things like this. If you want God, it only comes through me. I am God. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way for your forgiveness of your sin, reconciliation with God. It only comes through me. If you want life, it only comes through me. If you want the, the, the ache of your soul, it only comes through me. He is saying difficult and demanding things. So demanding and so offensive that in his day, people um, gathered in a crowd and they chanted for a prisoner, a renowned prisoner, Barabbas, to be released instead of Jesus. That's how offended they were at Jesus. See, he's always been a polarizing person. See, that, that same crowd chanted crucify Jesus. That that same crowd put their stamp of approval on mocking Jesus, spitting on Jesus, hitting Jesus, and ultimately their kind of public stamp of rejection was crucifying him. Okay, so he's always been that polarizing, uh, that polarizing person. He's always been this person that divides people. He has always been that. He, he can't be anything other than that if he's God, if he's the Savior. So, so that's always been, there's always been this rejection. But I want you to see this, that that rejection has eternal consequences to it. That, that when Jesus is offensive, not attractive to us, not beautiful to us, when we reject him, when we take him at his word and it's offensive to us, that, that's got eternal consequences associated to it. In Luke chapter um, 20, Jesus is quoting a similar passage out of Isaiah. But he adds one thing at the end of it. And he's, he's essentially talking to the religious leaders and he's saying, listen, you are the builders that have rejected the cornerstone. You're, you're them. But, but he adds these words to the end of that in verse 18 of Luke 20. He says, but everyone who falls on that stone, on this cornerstone, on Jesus, will be broken to pieces. 
And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See, it's amazing that that either Jesus is the cornerstone or he is the stumbling stone that will crush us. If you look at this passage, it's as if um, Peter is presenting these two options for us. And he is saying, listen, Jesus is either your source of eternal honor or it's gonna be your source of and the thing that will break you to pieces and be your eternal humiliation. And let that sober you. I mean, that, that is a sobering picture there. That, that it's, it's as if Peter is saying that Jesus can either be the source of your greatest rescue or the source of your greatest ruin. That, that when you stand before God, either one of two things will be highlighted and displayed. The great salvation that God offers or your great sin. It's the only two options. He's either cornerstone or he's stumbling stone. Okay, now, now this, is, this, this is what scares me so, so badly with our culture, is our culture has created a third category. And I'm just going to call it misconception. There's rejection, there's, there's reception, and now there's, there's misconception. And, and this is one of the things that for me scares me so much about preaching in the Bible Belt is because I think I preach to so many people who believe they have, they have received Christ, but are all the while rejecting him. And, and this is how I think it plays out. That there is a, a huge piece of our culture that, that sees group one, that the rejection Jesus crowd, like those people. And, and they don't want to kill Jesus. I mean, they're not out to crucify him. And so they look at those people who, who take offense at Jesus, who hate Jesus, and, and they think, that, that's not me. There's got to be another option here. And, and then they look at group two. They look at the, the people that, that have received Jesus, that love Jesus, that are pursuing Jesus, that have laid Jesus as the cornerstone of their life. He's no longer a brick that just added to it. He, he's a cornerstone. Everything else now revolves around it. He, he becomes the center of their life. He's actually affecting the way they live. They love Jesus. They're passionate about Jesus. They're pursuing Jesus. And, and this crowd looks at those people and says, they're crazy too. So, so they're crazy and they're crazy. And, and so they look at both of these two crazy crowds in their mind and they say, there's gotta be another option here. So they take, they take crowd one and pull them over. Like, they're not gonna kill Jesus. They're not out to crucify him. They're just gonna wanna sanitize him and bring him over here. But then they take this crowd over that, that's fanatics that just following Jesus like crazy, pursuing God, love God, passionate about God, and they want to pull them over to the middle. So we can kind of have this, this somewhere in the middle, some, something kind of neutral toward God, this kind of middle ground. I, I'm not going to crucify him, but I'm really not going to pursue him. If you ask me about Jesus, I kind of like him. I mean, he, I respect him. He said good things. He lived an imitatable life. Right? He did good things. He's an interesting guy. I take my kids to church. We, we kind of have a couple of Bibles around the house. We pray sometimes before meals. Sometimes before we go to bed, we do all that. If there's a, Christ, or a kind of a Christian tradition out there, we probably even do it periodically. Okay, so we're in on that. If you ask us about Jesus, we're all, I mean, we're, we're good. We're not going to kill him, but we're, not, we're just not all in with him. So, so we just have this whole category of people that are this middle ground. And can I just be as sensitive on this, but as clear as possible? Jesus leaves no room for a middle ground. No no room for a middle ground. See, if you're in the middle, middle is not reception, middle is rejection. If you're on the team that that is just neutral toward God, kind of slightly favorable toward Jesus. If you're on the slightly favorable team, you're on the against Jesus team. See, there's a real, a clear line drawn between rejection and reception. And in the middle is all rejection. See, to be slightly favorable toward God is rejection. To be neutral toward God is rejection. To kind of like God is rejection. 
To, to kind of think he's an interesting guy is rejection. See, all of that is rejection. There, there is no middle ground. He either is who he says he is and demands all of you, or he isn't and demands none of you. But there's no place for the middle. So I just want to ring this as loud as I can. Middle ground does not exist with Jesus. Middle ground equals rejection of Jesus. I, I like how Tim Keller put it. He said that you can either crown him or kill him. But the one thing you can't do is just say he's an interesting guy. And the reason that we live in the most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to live is because the people who fill up churches on Sunday mornings are people in the middle ground, unknowingly just rejecting Jesus, thinking they've received them, but all the time rejecting him. So, so maybe that should just sit for a second in here. And if, if you're neutral, if you're, if you're in the middle, that, that is not receiving Jesus. Let me end with these words from Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a British uh, author and novelist. Um, he is a wordsmith. Um, wrote one of just, I think, just a brilliant kind of display of Jesus and history. So, so let me end just by reading this to you here. He says this. <clears throat> we look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and empires falling. Revolutions and counter-revolutions. Wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare is written of the rise and fall of great ones. The ebb and flow, with, that, that ebb and flow with the moon, these great ones. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen, talking about England or Britain. He said, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song that the God who made them mighty will make them mightier yet. I have heard of a crazed, cracked Austrian, talking about Hitler, announced to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown, talking about Mussolini, say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I have heard of a murderous Gregorian brigand, talking about Stalin, in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as wiser than Solomon. I have seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together. So that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquest. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, and they're all gone, gone with the wind. England, part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids, talking about oil, that keeps their motorways roaring and the smog settling, with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime in one lifetime and all gone, gone with the wind. Behind the debris of these, super, or these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomats, there stands the gigantic figure of one because of whom and by whom and in whom and through whom alone mankind may still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. And I present him as the way, the truth, and the life. And my hope for you is that you would see Jesus like that, the way, the truth, and the life. He would be the way for reconciliation with God, for forgiveness of sins, for life. 
He, he would be the truth for you to plant your life on and he would be the cornerstone that stands under every part of your life. Amen? Let's pray. I'm gonna give you a second just to sit under that and allow the Holy Spirit to work that into you. If you're a person this morning that is kicking the tires, investigating the claims of Jesus, and we hope more than anything in the world that this would be a morning that you might step across the line of faith, trusting and treasuring him, believing in him, putting your faith in him, making him the foundational stone of your life. And the Bible says that, that, if, that if you trust and treasure him, that, that he'll save you, he'll adopt you into the family, be reconciled to God, and you'll be promised the eternal honor of God. But I, I want to just be clear with you on that, that he, he's not asking to be a brick in your wall. He's demanding to be the cornerstone of your life. And if you're a Christian in the room, I think this would be a good time for you to think through, are, are there functional cornerstones that I'm operating out of that my life is aligned to right now? One of the fears that I have for our church is, is Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus, where they're doing a ton of great things for God, but the only problem is they have lost their love for God. They, they've lost their love for Jesus. So maybe this is a moment where you just need to reaffirm, Jesus, I love you. And, and maybe, maybe he's not overly attractive to you right now, not overly beautiful to you right now, Maybe this would be a moment where you just ask the Holy Spirit, God, will you, Spirit, will you take the blinders off of my eyes and let me see Jesus well? Will you restore to me the joy of my salvation? God, will you, will you stir up in me a desire for God, a desire for Jesus like the psalmist in Psalms 42.1, that as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants after God. So God, I pray for that sort of work in this room today. God, that your spirit would start to do those sorts of things. God, that there might be some today saved from the penalty of their sin, brought into relationship with you, made a son or daughter of you. And God, there might be many of us here today that are being more and more saved from the power of sin in our life. That, that more and more of the stones of our life are being ripped from old cornerstones and placed on the cornerstone Jesus. And so God, will you give us good self-awareness? God, will you, help, will you help us see, give us eyes to see idolatry in our life? And God, I pray that, that you might reign supreme for us. God, that you might be infinitely precious to us. God, that we would be a people who look at you and we have passion that is stirred up in us with it. That we have a want to follow you and pursue you and run after you. So God, I pray that you might do that for us. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we sing. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.